This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. When was the last time I took a road trip? How many national parks could I hit in two weeks? What about hotels? Wait, hey Erica, how much am I spending on travel? When your questions about life turn into questions about money, there's Erica, the virtual financial assistant to help you spend, save, and plan smarter. Only from Bank of America. What would you like the power to do? Erica is only available in the English language. You must download the latest version of the mobile banking app, only available on select mobile devices. Your chat may be recorded and monitored for quality assurance. Message and data rates and additional terms may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And welcome to the first ever episode of The Rest is Money with me, Steph McGovern. And me, Robert Pearson. Although, Steph, I'm really relieved you're here. You almost didn't make it. I know, I nearly didn't make it. I I was in uh, Northern Ireland yesterday. And obviously, with all of the carry-on with air traffic control, I literally was refreshing my phone every 30 seconds, (laughs) trying to work out if my flight was going to get here because it was saying it's delayed, then it was cancelled, then it was delayed. And actually, do you know what? It got in early. Well, there you are. Thank goodness I've got my fold-up bike. I didn't have your trauma. I know. you. It's funny. You travel everywhere on that, don't you, you little Brompton? I do, though. Therefore, I I do think of myself as your carbon offset. I know. (laughs) I promise I won't fly in every uh, episode. I'm not going to be that bad. Okay, well, I'll hold you to that. I know the Prime Minister has um, reduced the amount he's flying. Let's all hope mm, we that's uh, gonna change be hard. our habits. Yeah, it's going to be hard to get to his holiday homes, though, isn't it, if he can't fly there? <laughs> anyway, um, flying and uh, all the air traffic control drama is one of the topics we're going to be covering today. But before that, should we tell everyone what this podcast is all about? Yeah, and I think that is absolutely right. So we'll be recording... Wednesday mornings and releasing the episode the same afternoon. On the show, we'll discuss everything from actually my current obsession, which is the impact of artificial intelligence, not just on the way we live our lives, but on our economy. Is it going to make us richer? I actually think there is a fair chance if we manage it properly, it'll help us to cope with our squeezed living standards. And then we're going to look at the other huge issues, whether we're stuck with high inflation for years to come, And I think we might indulge in a little bit of to and fro on Saudi Arabia and sport. Mm, Yeah, so essentially what we're doing in summary is we're following the money. So we're going to look at the big stories in the world of business and economics and uh, explore what's happening, what it means for us all. And amongst all of that big stuff, we'll throw in some of the kind of smaller, quirkier stories that you might not have heard about too. And what's brilliant for me is that you and I are back together I know the, uh, I mean, we formed I, I, the band I, I guess exactly um, because I don't know how many people know this but Steph and I worked together at the BBC oh my goodness 15, 16 is years ago is it really I, I still so consider myself as quite young but that makes me feel you old very, 15 are, years you, ago yeah, you are very young let's leave it at that uh, <laughs> anyway um, we had slightly different jobs Back then, you were more on the sort of production side. I was sort of yeah. doing business and doing politics these days. But we're both obsessed with economics. We're both obsessed with business. And actually, we're just both obsessed with trying to understand the way the world works and explaining it. Mm. So it's just so exciting to be doing this. Yeah, it is. It's funny, though, you know, since we've said we were um, doing this again, because, you know, for a long time at the BBC, I worked with you as uh, your producer. You were the business editor back then, weren't you? When it was in the middle of the credit crunch and all that was going on. And I remember my phone constantly going off no matter what time of day or night. And it was normally somebody you'd spoken to had given you yet another scoop, which, you know, I remember one particular Friday night, I sat down, we'd just done the six o'clock news and I thought, right, it's Friday. 
I haven't got a message from Robert. I'm going to pour myself a glass of wine. And then just as I went to take a sip, the phone went, I found out something about Fred Goodwin and blah, blah, blah. Get back in the office. And there I was. But we've got lots of anecdotes. I'm we've sure that will come. Actually, I, I'm not sure if I've revealed this to you, but I've got this thriller coming out. And there's a character a bit like you. Is there? Suffering the same kind of frustrations <laughs> in, in this particular book. So there you go. I'll give she you know then? I should have brought a copy along today for you, an advanced copy, but there we go. I know. Yeah, yeah I want to check she's, it. She's from the northwest, not the northeast. Oh man! <laughs> I mean, that heavily is, disguised. That is heavily literally disguised. <laughs> fight and talk. That you made them from the northwest. You know, it's a fictional character, Steph. Right. I anyway. said a bit like you. <laughs> Okie dokie. Shall we crack on then with what we're talking about today? Yeah. And so, what are we going to kick off with? So we are going to talk about, well, there's two things in the, that in particular I want to talk about. So I want to chat about what's going on in the retail world, because there are two big household names in particular that are in trouble. Pizza Hut, struggling to pay its debts, and uh, Wilco as well has gone into administration. Then later on, a story that's going to have wine drinkers raging. France is going to pay its farmers 200 million euros to destroy its wine surplus. But more on that at the end. What are you fancying today? So there's a couple of things. I mean, obviously, all, all our minds, we actually alluded to it, was the crisis of air traffic control. One of the things I'm obsessed with is how dependent we all are, businesses no exception, on what's called critical infrastructure. And infrastructure can go down because of incompetence or, and this is a big fear, particularly on the minds of ministers and in fact business leaders, it can go down because of cyber warfare. Mm. And so we're going to look at essentially how vulnerable we are. And then the other thing which I'm slightly obsessed with is the decline of the British stock market. And actually, it's important. It's not just about rich people because it is related to the prosperity of all of us. And I was very struck that uh, a fund manager who I actually have known for, I don't know, 20 or 25 years, a bloke called Richard Buxton, is retiring. And in his sort of farewell interview with the FT, he described the stock market as being in a sorry state as he departs. And I thought we might look at what that means and why that is. Yeah, sounds good. Right, let's kick off then with the, the first topic, the retail world. And this, you know, something you and I have covered for many, many years is constantly we talk about, are we facing the death of the high street? So the latest in all of this is two big stories. So one is the debt crisis that Pizza Hut UK is facing. The other is the collapse of a nine decades old business, Wilco. Now, both businesses employ thousands of people, don't they? And so obviously it's a really worrying time for them. So I think we should explain a bit about what's happened and why. Now, also, I like to think of myself as an optimist. So I also want to give a theory on why I don't think this is all doom and gloom for the high street. But we will come to that. Just to give you a bit of background on Pizza Hut. So it was founded in America in the 1950s. Uh, first restaurant here opened in Islington in 1972. Did you go to it? I'm not that old, for God's <laughs> sake. <laughs> and it did really well. And they had some, you know, you might remember some of the incredible ads they had, like Mikhail Gorbachev did one where he was eating a pizza with his granddaughter and then other people in the restaurant were arguing about it. And that's it. gone viral again recently, Yeah, it's it? gone viral again recently. It's had three million hits uh, of people watching it and arguing about whether he was good or bad for the Soviet Union. Anyway, also... <laughs> Not the argument wasn't about whether he's good or bad for pizzas. <laughs> no, seemingly not. Uh, Muhammad Ali did one as well. Donald Trump helped advertise the stuffed crust. He is a stuffed crust. Yeah, no, he is a stuffed crust. Gareth Southgate did that famous one as well. Do you remember where he had to have a bag over his head? He sat in the restaurant with a bag over his head because he'd missed the penalty in the semi-finals at the 1996 I was there. Euros. I was there. Yeah. Oh, were you at the Euros? That I semi-final. Was, yeah, yeah. One, of, oh. one of the most painful moments of my life. Anyway. Yeah. And it led to him sitting in a pizza with a bag over his head getting the mick taken out of him by Chris Waddle and Stuart Pearce but anyway did really well at its peak it employed 10,000 people wow. in the UK yeah 260 restaurants served 3 million people in a month so every month it was serving 3 million people and when it started it was before we all got worried about cholesterol wasn't it because I have to say <laughs> I yeah. don't think it was the healthiest thing when it started well one of the successes was the eat all you can salad buffet as well I remember that, but then all the dressings, again, were pure cholesterol. Yeah, all right, all right, fun sponge. Uh, <laughs> anyway, 
obviously not done as well necessarily since then. And if you look at the the numbers now in terms of workers and restaurants and things, so it's a, obviously there's a it's the franchise arm in the UK. So it's Pizza Hut UK, four thousand workers, one hundred and fifty two restaurants. Uh, it doesn't include the takeaways because that's a separate franchise. But the bit that's got this this crisis, this debt crisis, is the the arm, which is one hundred and fifty two restaurants. Right. So that just brings you up to speed with with where we're at with it. So in terms of what's gone wrong, what we know is that is that they're struggling to pay back the money that they owe to lenders. And they're in the middle of renegotiations at the minute to refinance tens of millions of pounds. So they're looking at wanting to refinance around £31 million out of its £73 million that's due by April. And there are lots of reasons why they're struggling at the minute. The big one for them is one that lots of businesses are facing, and that is inflation. And uh, their chief exec actually put out some interesting statistics about exactly how much their costs have gone up by. So, for example, electricity costs for them have gone up by 12 times and food price on top of that up 22%. Amongst all of these costs going up, they've also got the problem with the skills gap, which I know we'll talk about a lot on this, is the, the shortage of workers, the fact we are in the middle of a cost of living crisis, and then their staff asking for pay rises in all of this. So it's like a the perfect storm for them, even though they are taking in more money, their costs are far outweighing that. And that's meant they are making a loss and at the minute that's in the region of about three million pounds but Robert this is a lot as well to do with the problem of trying to refinance the debt they owe isn't it? So whether you are an individual uh, with a mortgage or a business with debts the rise in interest rates that we've seen after 15-20 years of interest rates declining and in fact we talk about the last 10 years as the era of almost free money. But, you know, unfortunately, low interest rates don't go on forever. I have been looking at recent work by the Bank of England on how exposed our businesses are. They actually put out some new data in the last couple of days. And the Bank of England says, yes, this is a problem. And the way that they look at the problem is they analyse the cash flows of businesses and they use a measure called EBITDA, and then they relate that cash flow to how much the business has to pay out in interest rates. And basically, the Bank of England says, if that relationship between the cash that a business generates and the interest rates it pays falls, say, to about two and a half times interest, then you've got to worry that that business could be in really quite serious trouble. And interestingly, and this is encouraging, they say at the moment it doesn't look as though businesses will get into the kind of trouble that we saw after the crash of 15 years ago or indeed during the dot-com collapse. So it's not that it's minimising the pain that businesses are suffering, but it does believe that interest rates would have to go up really a good deal from here. And at the moment, although interest rates are high, my own expectation is we're getting quite close to the peak, you know, maybe, you know, another percentage point or something on interest rates will, 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 will be the peak. So it doesn't think we're about to see widespread collapses, but we will see more collapses yeah. of businesses, uh, you know, and more businesses getting into trouble in the way that Wilco and Pizza Hut have. Yeah, because yeah, Wilco, as you say, uh, that has gone into administration at the start of this month. It's put 12,500 jobs at risk, hasn't it? Which is Although there, really is, a sale, there is a sale process going on. You probably noticed there are quite a lot of interested buyers and yeah. I was quite struck that they have, and this is... Good news, they have suspended the redundancy process for those individuals, obviously in the hope that somebody will buy the whole business and keep it going. I have to say, you know, um, my son, as soon as Wilco got into trouble, one of my boys texted me immediately because he had these fond memories of, you know, going down Wilco with his mum mm. on a Saturday. <laughs> um, so he was very upset. Do you know what, though? It's interesting, Wilco, because I don't think that that is a story about the struggles of the high street. I think they've just got it wrong because if you look at what has happened at Wilco, so the, the, the big issue is cash flow problems, isn't it? Which I think it sounds like that is their fault because, you know, if you remember, Wilco started in well, it was the 90s. cheerful. Yeah, 90s. 1930s, it knew what it was. It was a hardware store. And then before you knew it, it expanded. And, you know, I, I, 
I used to go in Wilco's quite a lot. Went in recently. The shelves were pretty empty. I didn't really know what it was anymore. Well, as I understand it, and you, you know, it moved from being very much a sort of value for money chain. Yeah. And, and try to move up market. As I understand it, that move up market was not a good idea. Yeah, and, and they've had loads of problems. Like the reason why the shelves are empty is because of the cash flow problems. Suppliers won't let them have anything without paying for it up front. That's always curtains for a business. I mean, do you remember yeah. during, I mean, you, you'll probably remember you and I covered the collapse of Woolworths. Yes, do you remember? yeah, uh, 2008. You know, an, an, another retailer, you know, the family loved. And, you know, one of the reasons it went down is because there just came a moment when nobody was prepared to give them finance to buy the stock. And at yeah. that point, you're over. The demise of the pick and mix. But interestingly, Wilco's took on 20 of the Woolworth stores, you know, as well. And part of the problem is the locations of Wilco's because, you know, their main rivals, like your B&M's, your, the range, home bargains, are often in places where you can easily park, easily drive to, whereas the Wilco stores are in high streets. And, you know, it's bulky stuff if you're going in for gardening equipment or even if you're going in for the kind of toiletry stuff. What's your view? Because you're quite close to... To retail, what, what future do you think there is for the high street? Well, I, I just think that the retailers that aren't going to survive this are the ones that are not seeing the inevitable change of, of what people want when they go shopping. And that is more experiential stuff. So... So it's less about buying stuff, it's more about having a good time, you reckon? Yeah, it is on the high street in particular. Um, so, for example, if you look at how shopping centres are working now, a lot of them are bringing in things that are, you know, experiential stuff. So, for example, there's a, a company called Gravity Max who now do lots of, like, electric go-kart racing in shopping centres or, you know, you can do all kinds of amusements and things like that. Obviously, I'm down every weekend on the electric <laughs> go-kart. You can, you can picture me, can't you? I could, actually picture you doing that I've seen you on your bike uh, you'd love it <laughs> but what I think the, the the retailers doing well are the ones that are either you know a bit more of an independent vibe so if you take Pizza Hut for example I don't I can't remember the last time I went into Pizza Hut it's now the, the places I go where I live up north in Newcastle it's like your, your crust social your quirky pizza places Scream for Pizza is another one it's that that you know they, they've got more of that you know offering where it's a little bit different you feel like you're supporting in a local business and you're not just do you think, going do you into think a homogenous chain. you think there is a move chain? away from, obviously it is a US franchise. When it first arrived, I think there was quite a lot of excitement, you know, the glamour of America yeah. uh, coming to the UK. It's not quite there anymore, is it? No, it's not. I think people think that, that, you know, that the chains like that, and not necessarily all of them, but for Pete's Hut, for example, it's quite homogenous, you know, Subway as well. You can smell a Subway before you go in one because they're all kind of the same, aren't they? That isn't working anymore. It does work for some people because, you know, obviously their, their, their revenues are, are still up, but it's the fact that I think people want more difference now. They want to they see things that aren't, aren't exactly the same. The reason I kind of know a bit about this as well is because, I co-own a slime business. I was going to say, one of the things is... I most admire about you is your <laughs> secret life as a slime entrepreneur. <laughs> I know, I know. So this, let me quickly tell you the story of how this came about. So one of the brilliant members of my team on my show, on Channel 4, our deputy editor, was constantly making slime with his kids and realised that actually there was quite a lot of fun to be had in the process of making slime and the science behind it and all of that. And then uh, he realised that all the kind of slime you could buy wasn't that good so he started making it and then his kids were like this is really fun other kids in the street were like can your dad make us some slime then he started doing these workshops and then he was like actually kids love this and before you knew it he was talking to me about it and I was like this sounds great so he ended up setting up a little um, shop in the arches of Brixton where he got a really good deal on, on the rent and this is with his wife Nishi as well it then just blew up and before you knew it the Beckhams were going there Harper Beckham and we're saying it was well, one I'll of the best you, days of my life. Success is because a few years ago. All our kids were making slime in the kitchen. Turned the, the, the kitchen into a disaster yeah, exactly. area. You know, so, <laughs> so just getting it anywhere out of the house is yeah. definitely a good thing. Yeah, so the Brixton did really well. I, that's when I came on board. And then now we've just opened our third shop. You know, they're in really good shopping centres. I mentioned about that Gravity Max place. That's in the, one of the shopping centres where our business is called. Historically, Utopia. rents have been really prohibitive. Well, I mean, that's had, what's really interesting yeah. because... 
businesses like this slime one and, and other ones offering experiential stuff bring footfall as in they bring in people who can drop off their kids there for an hour while they pop to I don't know River Island or wherever it is they're going for their bits and bobs so you're like a lost leader for the owner of the property so that in the hope that the parents yeah. will go off and spend money somewhere else is, yeah. that, is that the point well what's interesting is yes um, but the landlords were really sniffy with us for ages because they were like slime we're not going to lure ourselves to having a slime shop in here <laughs> and then they saw from one of the businesses we did how successful it was and how it did bring people as an attraction and now the the land the landlords you know some big companies like your land securities and, uh, and others are offering deals to companies like mine because they see the potential of bringing footfall for other businesses that are there too and that, I think that's really interesting because if, you know, you would never imagine that when you were going out to do your Saturday shop, you'd send your kid off to do make slime for an hour. Mm. But if that then sends the parents into lots of other shops where they're spending money, it, it works. I mean, I've been sort of reporting on thinking about whether the high street can survive for goodness knows how long. And it's, I mean, it's not just an issue for individual shops. It's actually an issue for how towns feel about mm. themselves. You know, one of the great problems in terms of, you know, the decline of many of our most important towns is that the high streets have collapsed. So is there any grounds for optimism? I personally think there is. I think whenever we go through a tough time in retail, it's the perfect time for the entrepreneurs, the, the startups, to get in with a cheaper offering. because Yeah. And then bring something new and invigorate into the high street. I think we've got to accept things change. and But not every shop can be slime. <laughs> in my eyes, they can. No, they can't. Okay, Doc, should we move on then? Yeah, and so we're now going to look at, well, you know, an, an issue that's been blighting, you know, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people, which is, you know, the collapse of air traffic control. But we're going to broaden it. We're going to look at critical infrastructure. Before we do, can I ask a question? Because mm. whenever something like this happens, your phone normally goes wild. <laughs> so come on, you'll know the truth. Was it a technical issue? Okay, so look, I've obviously tried to sort of get to the bottom of this by talking to spooks, ex-spooks, about whether or not this was a cyber attack. Do you or... have them saved in your phone as spooks? <laughs> that would be telling. Um, now, and, and I have to say the consensus in that community is that this was a cock-up by air traffic control rather than a cyber attack. I suppose the only thing I would say is, uh, from, from, from long and slightly painful experience, is they would say that, wouldn't they? Mm. But in the end, having spoken to a lot of people about it, I think this probably was, you know, choose my words carefully, some would say it's incompetence. And truth is, air traffic control do need to reassure us that we need to get to the bottom of why this happened, given the disruption. But yeah. it looks as though this was a management failure rather than an attack. But... One of the things that I have been thinking an enormous amount about actually broadly since COVID is the potential for catastrophe in this country, right? COVID, the banking crisis, these were catastrophic events that we didn't protect ourselves against. Another potential catastrophic event would be the failure of critical infrastructure. Now, the air traffic control system is critical infrastructure. It caused massive disruption to lots of people. It was bad. It'll have an economic cost as well as massive inconvenience to lots of people. But there are failures of infrastructure that can bring the country to its knees. And the question, therefore, is whether we are protecting ourselves enough against mm. those risks. You must have been into a, an air traffic control centre as well, because it's incredible when you go into these places, isn't it? And, and it, it's hard for people to picture, you know, if you think about it, there's something like two and a half million flights in UK skies every year and what you've got when you go into these air traffic control centres are people who are basically sat intently looking at screens. So this is so computer based and that's part of where the vulnerability is, isn't it? But I remember when I went to one of them, I was just amazed because you have to think in 3D when you're sat watching the screen, which I couldn't really do. I couldn't. To me, I looked at the screen and I thought loads of planes were about to crash into each other. But this person obviously was so well trained and, and intently staring at this. But, you know, I remember them 
saying that they have to have quite a lot of breaks because of this. They can only sit looking at that screen for so long before they have to leave and they're encouraged to have naps if it's night times and things like that. But the fact, my point being is the fact that it's so computer based yep. means that that is a vulnerability, isn't all, all, it? All our critical infrastructure is now based on network computers and, you know, that means if there's a bug in the system, could be an accident, that's, you know, that can cause a big problem. And if, as I say, a bad actor, well, Let's go back to the WannaCry uh, worldwide attack, which caused mayhem for the National Health Service in 2017. uh, You know, huge amounts of... Remind us what happened again. So in 2017, huge amounts of the NHS's computer systems were brought down by a cyber attack. It was known as WannaCry. This was a global attack. And actually, the NHS systems were down for days until they found, you know, what's known in the trade, the kill switch. So we've had experience in this country of the damage that this can do. Now, on the plus side, the government has become more aware of these risks. And every two or three years, it publishes a a, a book which goes through um, all the potential catastrophic risks that the country might face. This is the National Risk Register. The National Risk Register. The latest one came out just a few weeks ago after Parliament rose. It actually didn't, in my view, attract as much attention as as it could. Now, one of the risks that it categorises as the most serious is what it calls the failure of the national electricity transmission system. And I want to read what it says about, I want to read you what it says about this. It says, a nationwide loss of power would result in secondary impact across critical utilities networks, including mobile, internet, water, sewage, fuel and gas. This would cause significant and widespread disruption to public services provision, we're talking about the NHS here, businesses and households, as well as loss of life. And it also says that if the the electricity transmission was brought down in the way that it fears could happen as a result of a cyber attack, the restoration of critical services may take several months. Okay. <gasps> that so is we scary. are you know so we are talking about a risk that is not just going to cause us inconvenience for a few days, but could actually undermine the functioning of the economy. I, I don't know in the end how much weight we put on these things, but it also puts a probability on the risk of this kind of, you know, collapse. Go on then, of what's the it say? And it says there is a risk of between 1% and 5%. So that's a one in Does 20 that... risk of this system going down. That right? sounds scary. And, and, so, and so you just have to assume, if there's a one in 20 risk, that they are spending whatever it takes to protect us. Because we saw in the case of the collapse of our banks in 2007, 2008, and we saw in the case of COVID, that risks that were, you know, would have been considered roughly the same, something like one in 20, happened. Mm. And we weren't prepared for the banking crisis and we weren't prepared for COVID. So we just got to hope that actually they have put in place serious contingencies for this already. For this to happen, we're talking about something like the national grid having a cyber attack, aren't we? Well, the national electricity transmission system is indeed, it's another way of looking at the national grid. Yeah. yeah. So to explain what that is, this is basically the company that like manages the network and distribution of electricity that powers all the cables. And and, and it's a very complex system. You know, I think you've actually been in the game in the control room and and it can see where the power is going. If there's, you know, too much power going in one place and they haven't got enough supply, they're able to shift it from other bits of the country. It's a complex and important operation. Honestly, it looks like you're on, you know, in Mission Impossible or something like that when you go into the the National Gate control room. Because, I mean, when I was last there interviewing the chief exec, you've just got this massive screen that's constantly monitoring how much we're consuming, which obviously changes changes throughout the course of the day. It shows the amount we're generating and their job is obviously to try and balance this up. Uh, it shows the breakdown of where the power's coming from, which is always dead interesting actually in terms of where we're relying on our sources of energy. And then they predict how much we're going to use. And what's interesting, you say that point about, are they prepared for this? They've got quite a lot, the National Grid put out quite a lot about what they're doing around cyber security. So for example, they've said over a 24-hour period, their cyber security teams identified one point one million emails all attempting to reach the national grid email address 0.7 of them million were recognized as potentially malicious 
and therefore blocked from entry. And obviously the rest 0.4 were deemed as safe. But that's incredible, that proportion of dodgy emails, essentially. You know, the other thing to bear in mind, okay, is some of these risks are the direct, when I talk about, you know, national critical infrastructure, some of these risks are directly the responsibility of the government. So the NHS would be a case in point. But quite a lot of our critical infrastructure is in the private sector. Take a bank. So again, the National Risk Register looks at the risk of a cyber attack on a bank or a financial market, okay? Now, again, obviously, resilience against either a cyber attack or failure is something that any business will take seriously. And it is obviously something that the government will take seriously. But, and this is the thing where I wonder whether or not, you know, whether you're in the private sector or the public sector, you've got your priorities right. On any given day, what you're most obsessed with is, are you delivering the service as best you can to customers? You know, are you essentially, if you're in the private sector, supplying the services that are going to bring in the cash today, that are going to pay your wages generate your bonus and all the rest of it. And there is a natural human temptation, and we see this in business and we also see this in government, that if there is a risk of catastrophic failure but it looks quite small, you think, oh, well, I'll spend the money on mm. on, on protecting us from that tomorrow because I want to invest today in getting as many people in through the door or providing as you know many operations on the NHS rather than making the, the systems as robust as we possibly can. We are bad culturally at making those long-term decisions, spending money for the long-term against a risk that seems remote. And we can see the failure and the costs of that, as I say, in the banking crisis, where we didn't put in place the relevant protections ahead of time. We can see the failure of that in the way that we didn't protect ourselves. This is what that great national inquiry into COVID-19 is looking at. We did not protect ourselves against the risk of a pandemic in the way that we should. And so this is the beginning of a conversation on this programme, rather the end of a conversation. You know, one of the things that we're going to have to look at in the course of this series is our businesses, is the government spending the money now to protect us against these catastrophic risks? And I'm afraid to say I just don't have a confident answer to that, partly because quite a lot of people who've been at the heart of government have consistently said to me that government is too focused on the short term, what's going to win them a general election, what's going to stop the Public Accounts Committee criticising them. Because one of the problems with spending a lot of money on a risk that never materialises is people then say, well, you wasted all that money. I don't mm. know if you remember, a lot of money was, was spent on protecting us against a flu epidemic that never came. And people got criticised for spending that money. Yeah. Well, actually, I think that was the right mindset. Also, right? it's but it's working out which area to spend it in as well. Like, you, you know, I talked to a lot of small businesses and, and for them, they A, haven't got the money because of all the other pressures at the moment in business. And B, they have no idea what it is they're trying to protect themselves against. Because the, the thing we all know about these, you know, cyber criminals is they're incredibly sophisticated. You know, it could be very hard. What do small businesses do? Do they have someone who's set aside solely to do that? And how does that person even know what, what's to come from I mean, all I mean, of this? And, and the other sort of complicated area in all of this is we know a lot of cyber criminals are in Russia and actually there have been cyber attacks by essentially gangs basically planting ransomware. So for example, there have been NHS attacks this year. It looks as though these Hang are... Hang on a minute, there have been NHS attacks this year? What are you on about? For example, there was a reported attack on computers linked to Manchester University where they were holding a lot of data on patients, right? And this came from Russia. And the point one is making is that there is a huge amount of technical expertise in Russia. There are a lot of criminals in Russia. What we don't know is how much of this attempt to extract ransoms by Russian gangs is sanctioned by Putin, sanctioned by the state. When I talk to the intelligence services and people in that area, they also, you know, are constantly on guard for an attack more explicitly, not by sort of freelance criminals in a sense underwritten by Putin, but more directly by the cyber arm of the Russian intelligence service. And in fact, truthfully, there is some surprise we haven't seen more from Russia in that sense, trying to basically bring down our infrastructure. But th the fact that we haven't seen it yet doesn't mean that we're not at risk. It is something we have to be wary about. Do you reckon the Russians are uh, using the data they managed to get about us to from this uh, BBC 
hacking incident that we've both had letters about. Uh, well, yes. I mean, it, it, so one of the other, um, you know, a, a attempts to extract money effectively by blackmail was this, again, worldwide attack on a number of big institutions. One of the institutions that was attacked was the BBC. I haven't worked at the BBC since the end of 2015, so quite a long time now. They've managed still to extract quite a lot of my personal data. Yeah, uh, and me I, I got as well. A, you, got, you, got, you got the same email Everyone, and letters. I was with Angela Rippon when she got her letter too. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Angela Rippon got a, yeah. a letter saying... Angela Rippon, the consumer uh, stalwart. Right, right. <laughs> she even had her information anyway, mixed. Anyway, I have to say that I think, you know, what we've suffered is trivial compared to the potential risks. That's probably a good time for a break, isn't it? We'll see you in a sec. We will. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. Welcome back to The Rest is Money with me and Steph. Now, did you know that many international investors don't want to touch the UK? And I'm now going to quote one of the most powerful people in the city uh, because, in his words, we are such a joke. Um, it is the case that the value of the UK stock market is way lower than many of our competitors and has been that way for some time. And I was really struck you know, there's a fund manager, actually a bloke I've known for decades, a bloke called Richard Buxton. He's retiring from Jupiter Asset Management. He's pretty well respected in the city. And he gave a sort of farewell interview to the FT. And he said that the UK stock market is in a very sorry state. That's humiliating, isn't it? I mean, the basic big point is this. You know, when I was, I suppose, first reporting on the stock market, uh, it was a period of massive expansion. You know, when I was on the FT... It was one of the two or three most lively, thriving stock markets in the world. And now, on some measures, it's number 10, right? On some measures, Saudi Arabia's stock market is on a par, which is sort of extraordinary. The important point about all of this is this isn't just about the savings of rich people. You may not, as a listener, you may not have direct investments in the stock market, but you may well be saving for a pension, in which case you will, you know, perhaps the stock market will have an impact on you. But, but, but the, the equally really, really big point is this, right? If British companies struggle to raise money at, on good terms from the stock market, then they have less money to invest. And one of the things we've got, one of the great problems we've got in this country is low growth, what's called low productivity. That's the output that we each produce, which is very much tied to our living standards, how much we can afford to pay ourselves. And this decline in the stock market is almost certainly linked to this growth problem we have, this prosperity problem we have. And so if we can fix the stock market, it is certainly an essential part Again, one of the things we're going to be talking a lot about in this country, which is how do we return prosperity, growth in prosperity to this country? I think we should explain as well what you mean there when, when you're talking about the fact that it, it makes it harder for them to raise money. Because the, the sense is if the our stock market is, is cheap, if shares are cheap, it means that it's cheaper for investors to buy shares, but it means that it's harder for the companies to raise as much money. Well, it's just if it's the, the corollary for an investor of buying something cheap is that those are terrible terms if you are the seller, yes. right? So the reason this is on my mind, uh, Richard Buxton, he's retiring. One of the things that's massively on his mind is the way that reforms that were intended to protect those people who have their money in pension funds have had um, actually some very unfortunate consequences. And one of the consequences is the extent to which uh, those pension funds have reduced the amount that they invest in the stock market because the big change was a combination of politicians, regulators, accountants and actuaries broadly forced these pension funds to invest in government bonds rather than stocks and shares because they regarded these government bonds as safer, 
right? I'm going to ask you a couple of questions. So just out of interest, in early 2000, our pension funds, which control, these are the, these are, these are the, the so-called final salary pension funds, and they, at the moment, they control about £1.4 trillion of our money. About 50% of, what they, uh, of their money was invested in shares. How much do you reckon it is today? 30 Four <gasps> percent, you know, and so what you're seeing is British companies, right? British pension funds have turned their backs on British companies. Now, one of the reasons for this is, as I say, this regulatory change, which was designed to protect pension funds. I mean, you'll all remember the, the you know, the Robert Maxwell scandal where he, you know, stole from plundered from his pension funds. And so th this whole series of reforms was, was supposed to stop that kind of thing happening again. It was also designed to stop incompetent management from essentially not honouring their promises to employees to pay their pensions, right? But as I say, it's had this very, it's had this very significant adverse effect. So, I, you know, I have a sort of circle of what you might call miserable old gits who I ring up uh, to talk about these uh, uh, these sorts of issues. And the point about these miserable old gits is they run Who's banks, they Go run fund managers, right. they run hedge funds. These are, these are the people who broadly run the money in this country. Um, oh, men. And, and I'm afraid to say most of them are men. Right? How I mean, and, and, you know, so that, you know, this stuff has not changed. And, and so, you know, I ask them, you know, what is the cause of both the fact that the stock market's value has fallen and the other thing to bear in mind, and this is really important, right? The, the UK stock market is the only one not to have recovered from the collapse before the banking crisis, right? Pretty much every other rich country's stock market is now bigger than it was before the crash. So over 10 years, the UK stock market has returned 72% compared to 103% from the Japanese market, 110% from the European stock market, and get this one, 267% from the S&P 500, which is obviously in the US. I'm going to get back to my miserable old gits and what they so I said what, what you know what's the fundamental problem why is the stock market in such a sorry state all of them say this issue of pension funds lending effectively lending too much to the government and not putting enough into British companies but they also make some points which are genuinely sort of really worrying they also say and I thought that this had improved that British management just isn't good enough Right. And international investors take that view and British investors. In take what that sense? View. So as in British managers aren't good enough at getting the, you know, right growth in their companies. A couple of issues here. But the fundamental issue is this. And there's a, been a lot of work done on this, particularly out of the LSCs, a book called John Van Rien, a book called Nick Bloom. And what they looked at is how British companies use capital kit that they buy compared to American companies. Right. And American companies generate way more from the same investment than British companies. And the only explanation, if you're buying the same stuff and you're generating lower returns, is they've got better management in America. It's just, you know, they're, 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 what, what, there are no other variables to control, right? Uh, and, and so, you know, whatever we think, we are not managing our businesses well enough. There is another problem in... 2000, there were three British companies in the 25 biggest companies by market value in the world in 2000. How many British companies are in the top 25 today? Zero. God. Right? There are two companies in the top 50 these days. I think one is AstraZeneca, brilliant uh, pharmaceuticals company at number 48. And the other one is a, is a much older company, which you all know, it's, it's Shell at number 50, obviously benefited from the great boom in energy prices in the last couple of years. Now, the other problem, therefore, with the UK is we also have the wrong companies in the UK. If you look at the top 10 companies in the world, most of them are American and most of them are tech. For most of our big companies, you know, these companies, these huge digital companies, they're worth 20, 30, 40 times what our companies are worth. We just don't have these digital tech giants which are driving growth in the world. That is a major problem. That feels like a good point to talk about ARM because ARM, for those of you who don't know, ARM is a UK-based chip designer, isn't it? It's based in, in Cambridge. It employs about 3,000 people in the UK. And they their designs for their chip designs are in 90% of the world's smartphones. So that is a British company, isn't it? Great British success. And it was an absolute bloody catastrophe 
that shortly after Theresa May became Prime Minister, the government waved through the takeover of ARM by ja- uh, this Japanese business, SoftBank. SoftBank. There was a huge argument, we can talk about this another time, why, they should, why we should have retained that in British ownership, but they sold it. Right. And SoftBank, uh, this this huge Japanese investment business, has decided to raise a lot of money by floating it. And the government desperately lobbied SoftBank to list it in the UK. In the end, SoftBank just took the view that the UK stock market was just not good enough as far as they were concerned. And therefore, they are they are selling the shares in the US. I personally think this is really bad for the UK. Um, Does it matter if it's listed in another country, if the jobs are still here and it's still a business that's global? But over time, ownership and listing matter. Where your head office is determines your emotional attachment. If your head office is in Tokyo, you are much more attached to Japan than you are to the UK. And therefore, when investment decisions get taken or when the going gets tough, you are much more likely to favour your businesses at home than you are in the UK. So, yes, it does matter where these businesses are. Arm is going to be valued um, when it is sold, they say, at sort of roughly... $64 billion. Let's call it $60 billion. Apple, right? Apple is worth $2.9 trillion. I mean, you know, it's a great business arm, but it is a rounding error in terms of Apple's market capitalization. Even a business of that scale and importance is small and mm. it's no longer British. This is, you know, this is worrying stuff. Well, I think after all of that, we probably need a glass of wine. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm looking forward to, well, no, not quite at this time. It's wine o'clock somewhere. It is, but they've they've got too much wine in France, haven't they? Yeah, this is the news that farmers in France are going to be paid to destroy their surplus wine, which actually sounds like an oxymoron, doesn't it? And this is largely because wine consumption has gone down. So uh, we're talking double digits in Spain that it's gone down in France by as much as 34% in Portugal. But production across those main wine producing regions has actually risen by 4%. So they have got the inevitable glut of too much wine being left. So now the French government want to spend about 200 million euros on a scheme, uh, which includes buying excess stock from the farmers and basically getting them to distill it so that they get the alcohol from it to use for things like hand sanitizers or cleaning products or perfumes. Um, Some of the farmers are also being encouraged to look into other things they might grow like olives and then others are even being paid to actually just get rid of the the vines. Is this good wine? That's the thing about this. It it seems to be that it's because our preference for for red wine seems to be on the wane. So um, French people's consumption of red wine now has fallen 32% in the decade to, to last year. Young people have just changed their stuff they like to drink so they're more more bothered about the uh, spirits or craft beers or just simply drinking less it's the kind of middling wine the kind of lower end middling wine the premium stuff seems to be holding up pretty well but it's the the lower end stuff i guess it's like your five for a bottle although i was the bit i noticed was some were saying this was related to a fall in demand from china yeah you know as you know i've been obsessed with china for 20 years 30 years, you know, it's the big story of our lifetime, the rise and rise of China. And one of the things that's very interesting at the moment is the number of companies that are warning that their sales are under pressure because the Chinese aren't buying in as as much as they hope. So this is true of luxury brands companies. It's true of, you know, companies like Caterpillar that make huge kit. And, uh, you know, we're hearing that they're also buying less French wine and that this is contributing to this problem. Um, There is something really, I mean, you know, there's a a problem, which is obviously an important problem if you're in uh, French viniculture. The background story of China's growth not turning out to be what people had expected it to be this year post-COVID. Wasn't that inevitable, though? Wasn't it? Because China grew so rapidly and... Like you say, so many businesses have done so well out of that. But it was inevitable that it it couldn't continue 
to go grow as fast as it has. You have to separate, Steph, the short term and the long term. Long term, uh, China has had structural issues, you know, to do with way too much indebtedness in the property sector, really dodgy investment vehicles, uh, state controlled industries that are lumbering and slow. I mean, slightly embarrassingly, you know, I've been calling the the sort of China crash for about 15 years. Um, (laughs) It's not clear whether what we are seeing is that moment of reckoning for China. But we are seeing, you know, those debt pressures bearing down on the China economy. It isn't in the shape that people had hoped for and expected. Just one sort of small thing in terms, though, of the sort of way that um, China's confidence has changed. Also, I think China's sophistication has, has, has slightly changed. I remember about... Oh, I don't know, 10 years ago on one trip to China, I was with some billionaire. Uh, this takes us back to the, the, the wine issue. And you know, even then they were buying you know, what they thought of as being Western luxury things in vast volume. There's a particular claret called Petrus. You know, there are some vintages, I think, which sell for about £3,000 a bottle. Um, what is the point? And, 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 and I, watched, I watched this billionaire open a bottle of Petrus and then mix it with Coca-Cola. Whoa. <laughs> I love that. That they do that in Spain, don't they? But with cheap red not wine, with, not with Petrus. Yeah, not with three I grand hope. wine. Oh my god! It's interesting though, like farmers being, you know, told to destroy this wine. This is inevitably to try and stop prices coming down too much because obviously if you've got too much wine in the system then prices will come down and what the the French government are trying to do is is stop that from happening but could this mean then prices go up as you know if you get loads of farmers destroying their surplus if you get them getting rid of uh, some of their vines if you get them changing to making olives or whatever that could mean in the future perhaps when demand for wine increases the prices will go up a lot. I mean, look, France has always been French government much more interventionist when it comes to you know what they regard as strategically important industries. They regard wine as a strategically important industry. I mean, just very briefly to go back to our previous conversation, one of the things that is very striking about the collapse of you know the UK stock market and the fact that our businesses are so small is actually the French focus on businesses where they have a competitive advantage. You know, their, their luxury goods businesses like LVMH they are mm. among the biggest in the world now. They are way bigger than our com- our own companies. So France's interventionism has paid off, right? And so, you know, in the UK, we think it's appalling that they're, you know, essentially throwing money at at trying to support this bit of their agriculture. But I just remind people, living standards in France are higher than here. Uh, You know, productivity is higher than here. You know, not everything they do in France is wrong. It's funny that you mentioned that LVMH, though, because they've bought Whispering Angel, haven't they? And that's the new big thing. This is going to sound very snobby. I think we're past the peak of Whispering Angel, if I'm honest. Oh, don't say that to the Geordie girls. What every second Instagram post is a picture of someone with a glass of whispering angel up there, love. Okay, I don't want to alienate anybody from that part of the world. <laughs> Let's hope that French interventionism doesn't push up the price of our favourite wines <laughs> too. What's your favourite wine? Uh, I mean, look, I'm not averse to a bottle of whispering angel. I just think it's been overhyped. Oh man. <laughs> well that's it from us uh, for this week uh, next week we'll be back with the next episode of The Rest Is Money and follow us wherever you are on social media and obviously on all those podcast platforms goodbye bye bye <laughs>